Hey, this morning, if you are, are feeling insignificant, I've got a good news, bad news situation for you, all right? Uh, first, the bad news. The bad news, if you're feeling insignificant, mathematically, yes, you are. That's the bad news. Uh, when it comes to what has been created and size and mass, your mass isn't very significant in the big picture of things, all right? Contrary to your dog's view of you, there are some other 8 billion people in the world. And by just that comparison, you're not real significant. Are some of those people more valuable than others? Boy, 8 billion, what are the chances? And you know, human life isn't the only life here on planet Earth. Um, there's all the other animal life, right? And we're just a small percentage of all the other animal life. In fact, insects, mass-wise, have us uh, multiplied by 17 times. There's 17 times more insects, weight-wise, than there are human beings walking around on the Earth. I've got a, a graphic that will show that. I hope it will. Well, it's a really neat graphic, anyway, when it gets up there. Uh, holler if it shows up behind me, all right? But animals are not the only life that's on Earth. And when you talk about what they call biomass, the, the whole of all that lives on the Earth, animal life is actually less than a half percent of everything. Trees have got us way outnumbered. Bacteria has got us way outnumbered. And so we are just this tiny little speck in the, in the picture of everything that's living on Earth. In the grand scheme of things, you and I could use a reason this morning to act like human life is more valuable than fungus and bugs. But when it comes to the math, the bad news is, no, you're not significant. But there's good news. Ah, it's up. Thank you. See the little man over there on the right? That's us. All the other there is animals. But take that whole box, go to the next picture, take that whole box, keep going, and that box is now the little one down in the corner. That's, that's plant life up there. We are just a tiny little speck in the big picture of everything that's living. The good news, though, is that though we're not significant by size and mass in creation, your life you are really valuable to God. Amen? Today is the 40th anniversary of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Sanctity means that something is important, that it deserves respect. It's valuable. And if you're paying attention, you're aware this is an important issue in our culture. It is an important issue for us as followers of Jesus just to understand the sanctity of human life. Now, if you're listening to this message right now live, online, or here in person, or listening to it later recorded, and you're a human being, if you're listening, you have life. You wouldn't be if you were listening. You couldn't if you didn't, you understand. So instantly, this matter of human life is something that matters to you. We care, first of all, about our life. Your life matters to you. You ate breakfast this morning. You're breathing. Your life matters. And God's Word tells us then also, your life matters to God. I want us to walk out of here this morning with a good grasp of this. Here it is in a nutshell. I want to say this. Human life deserves 
special care because it is unique and valuable beyond all the rest of creation. And if you're not sure about that this morning, if you question that statement this morning, okay, I am glad that you are here and listening. Please invest 25 minutes of paying attention and hearing about something that already matters to you, your life. And if you already believe this, then great, I want you to be able to help others understand it and get there too, okay? So we can all look at this, I hope, and gain from it this morning. Here's the road to do that. The beginning is to get a view of human life that is based on truth. The way we're supposed to regard human life has been on people's minds for millennia. Go back to a list of ten commandments. Number six says, you shall not murder. Murder is the word specifically. It's short and to the point. It's about the destruction of innocent human life. Long before God handed the Ten Commandments to Charlton Heston on the mountain, and he came down with them, long before Moses brought the Ten Commandments to Israel from God, Noah was disembarking from the ark. And God gave this basic command. It's in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, very early on in human history, really, where God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. When we adopt a proper view of human life, the command, you shall not murder, is a no-brainer, isn't it? It's pretty simple. Man is created in God's image, so man doesn't have this place where he should take human life. The reason that so many people have so many different opinions on this subject today is that so many people set aside some important truths. And that first one is that we're created in God's image. God is the author of life. So if you don't accept what the Bible says about human life, its, it's origin, its uniqueness, its value, then you're not going to care much about this. And I understand this morning that that's actually where some people are. I also understand this, that there are some people who say they don't or say that they accept that, but when it proves that there's some obligations in life because of it, they're willing to set those truths aside. Please do listen, because you'll need to consider where the alternative leaves you. I'm working this morning with an assumption. I'm assuming that the Bible is true. And being true that there are some basic truths about human life from the Bible that will help us when it comes to dealing with all these issues about human life that are around us. Here's the first one. Human life is God's creation, so it belongs to God. Hey, if you make it, it's yours, right? Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Why is it his? For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So because he's our creator, God's our owner, God's our authority who has rights over us. That's how that works. This is the most primary problem of the theory of evolution, and it is the driving force behind it. See, if human life occurred by chance, then there's no one who has authority over it. 
If it all just happened to be, every person owns himself, every person is the authority over himself, you are not the boss of me, nor is anybody else, because we're all here by chance. And if you listen to much of the chatter about issues involving human life, you're going to hear that assumption. Man is his own God, and there is no outside entity who has a right to tell us what we should do. Scripture teaches us something different. Scripture teaches us that human life is God's creation, that that human life is God's possession. James tells us, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Human life belongs to God. Here's another important truth to put together with this, and that is that it, it is distinctively made in God's image. I want you to flip back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. It's not by accident that it's early on in the scriptures that God helps us to get this understanding. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In whose image? It's hard to miss it, isn't it? It's there three times. The Latin phrase for this is imago Dei. You want to impress your friends, say something in Latin. Imago Dei, it means the image of God. And that image means something more than just our physical appearance. It has to, because here in Genesis 1, it's the way that God distinguishes man from all the rest of creation. Let's make something different. Let's make him in our image. It doesn't say that about any other part of creation. God breathed the breath of life into man. It doesn't say that about the rest of the creation. He made him into a spiritual being with a soul and free will to choose right from wrong and to freely choose to have a relationship with God. We bear the image of God unlike anything else in creation. Here's a third truth to throw in with this, and that is that human life should be valued beyond all the rest of creation. I like what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory, and he's talking about how we look at other people and how we need to be careful how we regard other people. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal Nations, cultures, arch, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's why in Genesis 9, God said, to Noah, for your lifeblood I'll require a reckoning. From every beast I'll require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. See, that means if someone is human, that person has great intrinsic value. 
So turn to a human next to you this morning. There are several here in the, in the room. Turn to a human next to you this morning and remind him or her of that, will you? Tell that someone next to you, stranger or not, you're valuable. Try that out. See, it's true. It's just true. Your life is valuable. And it's true of every human being. There's a discipline called xenotransplantation. It is the use of animal cells and organs to provide organs or cells for human beings. It's been going on actually for a long time. There has been some use of fetal pig cells in an attempt to treat Parkinson's disease. And every year in the United States, there are some 60,000 people who get what's called, you, you've heard it, <laughs> pig valves, right? In their hearts to save lives. And there are still people who protest the death of the pig or a gorilla or other animal in an attempt to save a human who would otherwise die. Animals are some of God's handiwork. God cares about animals. He says that the end of the book of Jonah even. He cares about animals. But when human life is viewed as somehow equal or somehow even less important to animal life, something has gone terrible wrong. Folks, we are not parasites on a planet that has allowed us to dominate by mutational advantage. It wasn't for cats and dogs that Jesus died. God didn't seek to redeem cows and chickens with the precious blood of his son. We have got to have a proper understanding of the value of human life. So having this view of human beings impacts our worldview this morning. It means that we don't value anything in creation more than a human soul. That human soul that you turned to just a moment ago and said, you're valuable. Do you realize how profound it is to say that? It impacts whether or not we're going to decide to go to the expense and the work of sending the gospel to people overseas. Go ahead and ask Michael and Megan Barton if it's worth it to pack up their family again and to move to a certain country in northern Africa so that the people there can have God's word in their own language. Ask them if it's worth the effort, if those souls are valuable enough that we should do that, and they'll answer you. Yes. It impacts our attitudes toward every person we contact. Did you make your list for Disciple Hour class today? A hundred people in your circle of influence? People whose lives matter. Did you make that list? We're going to be talking about that together around tables today. I tell you, it, it shapes the way that you think about the creep at school who causes you trouble about the guy who pulled out in front of you and who is now driving slowly, about the person who waits on your table, and about the people who are sitting across the table from you. It impacts your view of those people. Psalm 8 tells us about mankind, that, that God made him just a little lower than the heavenly beings. 
but crowned him with glory and honor. And then he goes on to say, yet you have made him uh, that you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. It is God who has set mankind over all of these things. When we learn to look at every person as more important than the rest of all creation, we'll have a good foundation on how to view several of the current issues in our culture. I'll tell you, we'll have a much better foundation than getting it off of X or TikTok. Start with this idea that God has set us up to be his stewards who are over his creation and you'll have a better sense of direction in your life on a whole list of subjects that deal with human life. Human life begins with God, belongs to God, and is valuable because we bear His image. That's a biblical understanding of human life. Amen? Amen. That takes us to a second important truth, and that is to get a biblical approach to issues about human life. You have heard the phrase bodily autonomy. That one came up in the past year especially. It literally means to control your own body. Everyone should control their own body. Amen. <laughs> Definitely. The reason the abortion industry exists in our nation and others is because people exercise bodily autonomy and the result of that is pregnancy. Are you listening? The abortion issue from the start is a sexual issue. It is driven by an attempt to have the benefits of sexuality with none of the obligations. The first and obvious and most important one, which is children. And I'm sorry I'm speaking so frankly about it, but I don't hear many other people speaking about it in those terms. So feel free to quote me on that. The abortion issue in the world is a sexuality issue. That's what's driving the whole thing to start with. No one's talking about that. Well, for decades, tension with other nations has raged over different approaches to human life issues. Abortion, euthanasia, slavery, asylum, even the, the definition of what constitutes a marriage have been hot issues for years now. And maybe you're thinking, you know what, I've got those things settled. I really don't have to deal with that. That's not a problem for me. I'm comfortable with where I'm at on that. Well, think some more. If you ever vote, if you're ever asked to serve on a jury, if you ever might become a public servant, a teacher, or serve on some board of directors, or in law enforcement, or in the military, if you are a parent, or a grandparent, or if you care about murderers not running loose in your neighborhood, or if you want to have a clue to know what to say to a mother who has just lost a child by miscarriage, this matters to you. It matters. Where should your views regarding issues of human life be coming from? Let me give you an example. Numbers 35. Flip your Bibles over to, to Numbers 35. Everyone's going, could there be a more boring book name than Numbers? Well, it's not just Numbers. 
Here is God giving Israel laws regarding when someone deliberately takes another person's life. Chapter 35, uh, verse 20. He says about someone who kills another person, if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. There are two people in this scenario. One who is an innocent victim, one who is a murderer, who deliberately takes the life of another person. That person who is guilty of murder, God says to Israel, shall be put to death. Anyone who takes an innocent person's life is taking over God's place as the one who is in charge of human life. We take that principle in our society. We call it murder in the first degree and murder in the second degree. And then the Old Testament law makes a distinction between murder and what we today call manslaughter. Keep reading in chapter 35, verse 22. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him, dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. In other words, it's different for someone who didn't deliberately take a person's life. And we use this principle in our justice system too. A non-guilty person shouldn't die, but the person who's guilty of the crime should be put to death. You see, the issue that God distinguishes here, the principle that he lays out here, is the difference between innocence and guilt. Is a person innocent or guilty? And if we'll take that biblical approach into our current culture and into matters involving life and death, we can protect the sanctity of human life in our generation and in generations to come. Right now in the United States, we are averaging uh, over some 20,000 homicides, murders, every year for a few years now. As a nation, we have devalued human life. Why is there a group named the Hemlock Society, a suicide advocacy group? Why does a guy named Dick Humphrey write a book some years back called The Final Exit, a, a book about how to commit suicide, and it becomes a bestseller? And does it surprise us that high school kids decide to show up at their school to destroy life when in their own country, millions of innocent unborn babies have been killed in the name of convenience? If a greater number of people were taking a, a biblical approach to human life issues, I don't think these things would be happening. There are all these questions that arise. Is there ever a time when taking a human life is justified? Should the government engage in capital punishment? Is, is war ever the right thing to do? And I want to tell you that the one who created human life is the one who has authority to direct how it should be handled. The other option, by the way, if we're not going to listen to God as the authority on this subject, the other option is that we take a popular vote and we ask society whether you should live or not. Good luck with that one. 
I'd rather look at what God has to say about these things. And one of the main factors is whether a person is guilty or innocent. It's not about if the person is born or unborn, if the person is contributing to society or not contributing to society. It's not about if that person is convenient or a burden, or if that person is fulfilled in life or sad in life. That's not the question. And I won't take any more time to try to apply that right now. I want to encourage you to do that around lunch today. And as you do that, give attention in your discussion to whether or not a person is guilty or innocent. And let's take that very basic biblical approach into life issues. Can I get a nod of assent on that? I'll do that today. Would you do that? Have that discussion. And now turn to that human being next to you and say, let's take a biblical approach to human life issues. Go ahead. Let's take a biblical approach to human life issues. And invite them to lunch too. All right. All right, here's the third thing that I, I think will get us on the right road, and that is to take personally the command not to murder. If, see, if these issues that I've been talking to up to this point really don't touch you closely enough, okay, now you can take your shoes off, not because we're on holy ground, but because it's easier to stomp on toes. We need to take personally the command regarding murder. It's easy to read about it in the book of Numbers and say, yeah, that's a great rule. Well... Most of us aren't struggling with the thought of murdering someone this morning. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has us consider not just the act of killing someone, but what's at the root of all of that. Matthew chapter 5, let's take a look at it and consider if we need to give this more attention today. Matthew 5, it's in verse 21. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, Everyone who murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And the words that Jesus cites here are the words in that day that similar to the words that we use when we want to tell somebody that we despise them or they're worthless to us. He wasn't introducing here some new law. He was directing people to the spirit of the law as God gave it. Murder is not just an act. It's an attitude. One writer put it this way. Anything that contributes to the erosion in our society of the sacredness of the person is a form of murder. Remember Cain? <laughs> How many, how many people had to be born before murder was committed? Two. <laughs> Cain, who murdered his brother Abel. He was jealous of Abel. Inside, he was jealous and angry. And God told him, sin is crouching at your door, and you must master it. But Cain let his anger master him and erupted into an act of hateful destruction against his brother. The very first murder is a vivid reminder to us that anger and hatred are where murder comes from. Maybe you've never even approached the thought of killing someone, but have you ever let your anger erupt into a tirade of words that were meant to tear somebody down? Have you ever been so angry that you would be glad if something happened to that person. 
One of the ways that you and I can uphold the value of other people and safeguard the sanctity of human life is to deal with anger in a biblical way rather than stuffing it away for later reference. Told you, take off your shoes. There's a second way that we can do this too, and that is to value human life in general. Last week in Disciple Hour class, Everyday Evangelism, we were given an assignment of listing 100 people in our circle of influence, people that we know. That's work in itself, isn't it, to sit down and write 100 names? Do I know 100 people? How, how many of you found out you knew you know 100 people? We're finding out how many didn't do the assignment now, too. All right. <laughs> well, it's work to sit down and write down those names. But then we were to consider about every one of them, as far as we know, are those people saved or not? See, it wasn't just busy work. It was to cause us to consider, do we value those people's eternal lives or not? How much has our cultural slide to devalue human life affected us? Start asking some questions. When you hear about an ethnic war happening on the other side of the world, do you get a pit in your stomach? Same one that you get when you hear that your job's in danger or that your car broke down. Do you get that same kind of feeling over people being killed? When you watch a movie and the bad guy dies some horrible, gruesome death, do you go, yeah. When you come upon someone who slows you down or is really different or who just makes you uncomfortable, do you think... I wonder how much God values that person. Or do you get impatient, maybe disgusted? See, not being a murderer goes beyond just not doing an act of murder. It means doing the opposite. In fact, it's called love. John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Back in the 1930s, there was a preacher in Germany, in the Lutheran Church of Germany, called Martin Niemöller. Niemöller, at first, supported Hitler as he came to power. He looked back on that mistake. He later, though, became a part of those who opposed the whole Nazi movement and what it was doing in Germany. And Niemöller would end up being a prisoner in two different concentration camps for almost eight years. During World War II, he was nearly assassinated but survived. And he would later then, as a, as a person who survived and had a change of heart, he would later become a speaker and often would give public presentations that would include a confession. And it assumed various versions coming from him. Here's how it basically sounded. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. 
You've probably heard that before. Every time that we fail to be moved by human suffering, every time that we try to rationalize for some reason that a human life is not really important, Every time that we fail to see a valued soul, when we lock eyes with someone else, we are being inconsistent with what we claim to believe about the value of people in God's eyes. We ought to be showing that we value human life by regarding people, all people, as God's greatest concern in his creation. Amen? If we would start with that foundation, we'd have answers to so many questions about human life issues. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. One died for all. Every person is valuable enough that God sent his very own son to die for everyone, even for those who choose to reject him this morning, even for you and for me. There is no greater love story. There is no greater reason for a healthy self-image than to realize that the creator and sustainer of the universe values you. He pronounces you valuable. He is wooing you. And he wants you to respond to his offer of eternal life. There is no better reason to pause for serious reflection right now on the value of your life and what God wants you to do with that life. Pray with me, please. Father, just now, help us please to hear the truth that you give us in your word. Help us please to take upon ourselves the right attitude, the right understanding of what you have said about the value of every human being's life. Father, we are surrounded by people who are missing that mark because they have found it convenient to set aside what you've told us. I pray today that we would not find that convenient. But confront us, please, uh, with these things that we have looked at. And in light of that, Father, affect the way that we look at other people. Help us to regard them the way that you do. Also, Father, uh, for those today who are maybe just juggling around the thought of submitting to you and giving you lordship in their life as you deserve, Father, I pray that they would consider their own value in your sight, what you have done to bring them back, and that perhaps today, uh, Lord, will be the day that they make that decision. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.